Oh. <laughs> okay. Philippians chapter 2. Um, we're going to pick it up in verse 12. We looked at the first 11 last week. We'll, we'll start in verse 12. Um, so if you would, please stand uh, as we honor the reading of God's word this morning. Philippians chapter 2, this is Paul writing. He says this. He says, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my present, but presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Do all things without grumbling or disputing that you may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world. Holding fast to the word of life so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I'm glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the day. Thank you for all you've given us. Thank you for uh, the good news of the gospel where we find salvation. Uh, and Father, I pray today that as, as we look at the implications of that, uh, that we would all ask ourselves the, the question uh, whether we're working our salvation out. And are we doing that with fear and trembling? Are we, going, are we growing uh, to be more like you? Uh, I pray today for conviction to where we fall short. Uh, I pray for those who don't know you that today that the gospel would be preached and that they would be saved and you would draw men and women to yourself. And it's in your name we pray. Amen. All right, so last week... We, we looked at the first uh, 11 verses where basically Paul showed us that, that humility was the way of, of the Christian life, right? That, that humility uh, was best described as self-forgetfulness. That, that, that humility is not thinking less of yourself, but thinking of yourself less. That you and I, uh, as sons and daughters of, of Adam, we're hardwired to look out for number one and not for the interest of others. And so when we think only of ourselves, that's the opposite of humility. That's called conceit. That's called vain glory. And so the key for us as Christians is not to look at ourselves, but at Jesus and what he did. And in verse 5 of chapter 2, Paul busts out in this hymn that tells us that Jesus was the better Adam. He was the true Adam. Where Adam saw glory as something that, that could be grasped, uh, Jesus didn't. And he emptied himself. He took the form of a slave. And he died in the most humiliating way. He died a death on a cross. And so what that shows you and I is this, is that the way up is down. The way to be rich is to give away. The way to rule is to serve. To be happy is not seeking your own happiness, but to seek the happiness of others. That Jesus' humiliation gave way to exaltation. And right now he's seated at the Father's right hand. And one day he will return and every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And what we said was this, is that those of us who refuse to bend the knee in humility in this life, in the next life we will bend the knee in humility. And after we've bent the knee and after we've confessed him as Lord, he will say, depart from me, I never knew you. But those of us who bend the knee in humility in this life, in the next life, as we bend the knee, Jesus will say, well done, enter into your rest. And the reason that you and I will enter our rest is not because we've earned it, but because Jesus earned the way for us. 
Now today, Paul is going to address the way we grow uh, in the Christian life. And what I need you to understand is that if we're going to grasp what Paul says today, we have to understand that there is an order in the Christian life. So, so what comes first in the Christian life is the miracle of salvation. Now, whether you know this or not, that your salvation is a miracle. It's a miracle. And God is the initiator of your salvation. So in other words, he acts before we act. We act because he's already acted. So when you become a Christian, ultimately God was the one who did that. Okay? Everybody with me on that? God's the one who did that. I don't care where you were at or how old you were when you were saved. God is the one who initiated that. Right? So we've had all these kids lately that are coming to faith in Christ. It is God who is impressing upon their hearts saying, hey, you need me. Hey, you're a sinner. Hey, you need to trust in Jesus. If you got saved later on in life as an adult, it was God who impressed that on your heart to say, hey, you're a sinner in need of grace. Jesus did that. Jesus called you to himself. First John 4, 19, what's it say? We loved because he first loved us. So God's love comes before our love for him. So he took the initiative in loving us. Then you and I are enabled to love him. But God always acts first, all right? And I get it. Some of you give me bad looks, okay? You're like, oh boy, here he goes, right? So where's my choice coming to play, Byron, all right? Well, this passage today will come closer than any other biblical text in answering that question. We're going to explain the relationship between God's sovereignty and our responsibility. So God produces the miracle of salvation, but then we perform the deeds. The miracle he does in your heart does not undermine or contradict your duty. Rather, it makes it possible for you to fulfill that. So you acted because God has already acted. His action empowers your action. All right, so look at it with me, if you will. Verse 12, Paul says, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now not only is in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. All right, so, so stop right there. So the first thing it says is therefore, right? There's an old rule. You've heard me say this. Anytime you see therefore in the Bible, what do you got to do? Yeah, you got to ask, why is it there for? What's it there for, right? So what is it there for? So Paul's going back to the first 11 verses. So because of Christ's humiliation, leading to exaltation on our behalf, because of his emptying himself for us, because of his being obedient to death on a cross, because of that, because Jesus has already done all these things for you, therefore now you go obey him. So you notice the order, right? You don't obey, then you're loved. No, no, no. You are loved and saved first, then you obey. That's the order. So Paul says, you obeyed when I was there with you in Philippi. You obeyed when I was walking with you and pastoring you. Now that I'm gone, continue to obey. And he says, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. So God performs the miracle of salvation in our hearts. Then you and I now work out our salvation. Now, over the last several years, there's been this prevalence of of what's kind of called hyper-grace teaching that's kind of creeped into the church. And one of the things you'll hear these guys say is this phrase, effortless spirituality. That essentially, you're saved, and then that's it, and then all of a sudden, overnight, you just radically become a super Christian. There's no work at all. It's effortless. 
And any attempt on your part to grow in your faith, to discipline yourself, to do any of the things that Paul talks about is met with shouts of legalism. Oh, you're just self-righteous, right? You Pharisee telling me to read my Bible and grow. But, but that's not what the scripture says, is it? The scripture never says that you're saved and automatically you just become a super Christian. It doesn't say that. In fact, if you read the Bible, you see that the Christian life's a battle. And it calls for the active, energetic engagement of our minds and our wills. So, so we're not made holy and like Christ instantaneously, right? Yes, before God the Father, he now sees Jesus. But on this earth, there is a process that you enter into. And it's one in which you and I are called to take a very active role, right? I'll prove it to you. Philippians 3.12, not that I've already obtained this or, am I, or I am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Romans 14.19, so then let us pursue what makes for peace and for mutual upbuilding. 1 Corinthians 9.24-27, do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one receives the prize, so run that you may obtain it. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. So I do not run aimlessly. I do not box as one beating the air, but I discipline my body. I keep it under control, lest after preaching to others, I should myself be disqualified. Hebrews 12, 1. Therefore, since we're surrounded by a great cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every rate and sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that's set before us. 1 Timothy 6, 12. Fight the good fight of the faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called and about which you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. It's a fight. It's a battle. Sam Storm says the sanctifying grace of God is not a divine kiss that suddenly transforms a frog into a handsome prince. Amen. See, that verb translated work out, it has this sense of laboring at something until it's brought to completion. Working on a project until you're finished with it. So here's what Paul's saying. You're already saved. Therefore, right? Jesus has already saved you. He's already done what you could not do. He's already given you his righteousness. He's acted first. You're already saved. You've already been shown grace. Now go swim in that grace. Discover more and more of that grace. Make progress in that grace. Right? So when we talk about working on our marriage, right? And everybody that's married can say, amen, it is a work, right? Some of us are harder to work with than others. That would be me. We're not saying that you go and renew your vows every day and you run down to the courthouse and you re-sign the marriage license. That's not what we're saying. You're already married. Now live in accordance with what's true. Love your spouse. Honor your spouse. Value your spouse. Put your spouse first. Take care of your spouse, right? All work on what is already true of you. So you're already saved. So Paul's saying, now take the necessary steps so that the grace you received might flower and take shape in a way that pleases God. So in other words, your faith should then produce deeds. Paul would tell us in Ephesians 2, 8 through 10, for by grace you've been saved through faith. This is not your own doing, right? There's the order. He did it first. He acted before you did. It's a gift of God, not a result of work so that no one may boast, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So we aren't saved by good works, we're saved for good works. Remember, Paul's addressing the church. 
This is in the context of a local church. He's writing to a group of believers, and he isn't saying, work for your salvation. Did you catch that? He doesn't say work for your salvation. He says work out your salvation. There's a huge difference between work for and work out. Work means earn. Work out means salvation's already in place. You're simply unpacking and exploring it and figuring out what it means every day. So because of the salvation you've received, because of the miracle that Jesus has performed in your heart, then be diligent in your pursuit of holiness and be devoted to becoming more like Jesus. And he says, do all of that with fear and trembling. So your salvation and growth and holiness, it's not a joke. It's not something that we're to blow off. It's not something we're to, to take flippantly. It's something that, that's serious work. It's hard work. That's why you have all these training metaphors in the Bible that Paul's talking about athletes working hard in training because it's something that we're to take seriously. Verses nine through 11 tell us that one day we will bow before Jesus. We will confess him as Lord. So it means that we're accountable to him for our words, our actions, our thoughts, everything that goes through our minds and the things we do every day. We, we're accountable for that. So, so work it out with fear and trembling. It's a serious issue. But it also means that there should be an element of fear and trembling that if we don't work out our salvation, then we've not lived up to the privileges of being God's children and we may suffer the loss of rewards. We may suffer the loss of intimacy with God in this life, right? Because there is an intimacy we gain in this life as they're not being close to the Lord on this earth. We suffer that loss when we're not working it out. Now, this isn't saying you can lose your salvation. The Bible never says you can lose your salvation, but everybody look at me. The question the Bible always asks is, did you ever have it to begin with? That's what Paul's getting at by saying with fear and trembling. Paul's saying, if, if there is, is there's no growth, if you're just the, the same person you are today as you were 10 years ago, right? If you're not maturing in the Lord, if you're not growing, if you're not changing, then there might ought to be some fear and trembling in your life to whether you knew Jesus or, or, or you don't. Now, I'm not saying that, 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 that that's instantaneous, right? Joe did a great job several weeks ago talking about this. Some of us just grow a little bit slower than others, Right? Where Jesus saved us, some of us, he, he saved us out of some really hard situations. And so maybe our growth is a little bit slower than others. But listen, there should be growth. That's why the Bible talks about community all the time. You ought to have people in your life going, dude, you're just as big a jerk as you were five years ago, man. We need that in our lives. So Paul's saying, if there is no working out, there should be some fear and trembling because you may not know Jesus. And then look what he tells us in verse 13. He says, for it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his own pleasure. So, so for, or, or it could be translated, because God is working in you for his good pleasure. So in other words, how do we work out this salvation? By God first working on our desires and our actions. So again, that's not effortless. We, we don't just sit around and whistle and wait for him to work. He's saying, no, get up and work with the confidence that what prompted you to get up and work was God first working on your heart to begin with. God's work in us is the cause. Our working out our salvation is the effect. See, this is what makes Christianity unique. Every other religion says you work first 
and then God will work second, maybe, if you did enough. Only Christianity says, no, God worked first through grace, and then we in obedience produce good works. See, ultimately, it's not 50-50, us and God. It's not. It's God does 100% of the work providing power and incentive, and we do 100% of the acting through the power he has supplied, right? right? And I still see you, you're giving me bad looks. Byron, I'm so confused right now. It seems like you're blurring the lines between God's sovereign power and God's sovereign choice and my choice. I don't see how they work together. Me either. I don't get it. But there is a tension there that we must always be comfortable with. God is bigger than we are. And if we think we have God figured out, we're not worshiping the God of the Bible, we're worshiping a God that we created. God produces the miracle within our hearts and gives us the power to act. But listen, we must perform the deed, all right? I'll give you some examples. Think of it like this. So when you're filled with generosity to give to the church or a family in need or to a family member or a neighbor, God's the one who gave you the desire. But guess what? You wrote the check. When God stirs your heart to help work with children, you're the one who has to show up and do the work, right? When God stirs up your heart and says, hey, they really need help going to church camp, you're the moron who showed up to go for the week, right? That's a rough week. When God reminded you of the beauty of the gospel and all that he did for you and he convicts you of a certain sin, you're the one who disciplines yourself and takes the actions to walk away from that sin. Right? You, you get the point, don't you? Is that God does the miracle and empowers us. We do the work. And how all that works, I don't quite know. I don't quite get it, but I'm thankful and I'm okay with the mystery that it produces in my heart. I'm good with it. So Paul says, work out your salvation. But then look, he gives us something so practical, so relevant. Verse 14, do all things without grumbling or disputing. So he's turning his attention now back to the body of Christ. And what he's about to do here in, in, in 15 through 18 is he's gonna draw a parallel between the Philippian church uh, and the children of Israel wandering in the desert. So if you remember last week, he says we're to have one mind, one soul, we're to be unified, moving in the same direction as a body of Christ, right? And what he means is, is that we can't be unified, one mind, one heart, one soul, if we're grumbling or disputing among one another. Mark Dever says, we must not fill up our churches with complaining, even while God saves us from hell and sin. Instead, our churches should be filled with, with people who are thankful to God and whose thankfulness is important because it demonstrates we are true children of our heavenly father. Now, this has been missing from the American church the last 18 months, hasn't it? I saw a tweet a while back, printed it for you. I'm gonna read it. This pastor wrote this. He says, I'm telling you, it's really hard to be a pastor right now. Complaining and distracted Christians are about to wipe them out. There's a deep sense of isolation and obscurity, and many are just walking away, not from the faith, but from the jagged, soul-crushing labor of trying to walk between two worlds professionally. And we have it a little easier out here than other parts of the world, but I got a buddy back in St. Louis, I was talking to him the other day, and he said, man, you don't have any idea how hard it is up here. He said, my, my county just went back to a mask mandate. He says, if I go along with it, I lose half my church. If I don't go along with it, I lose half my church. You can't win. 
right? You, you, you try to be faithful, you try to do what's best, you, you can't win, right? Other churches are, are fighting over just silly things, silly things, right? Like, like if we say, hey, there shouldn't, we, we, should, we should stand up and we should fight for our brothers and sisters of color. Well, that's CRT, pastor. Don't have a clue what it is, but that's what it is. You can't say that kind of stuff. It's happening all over the place, right? Had one church recently, they had a big vote go on in the church, and you know what happened? Everybody threw a fit and said, there's voter fraud in the church. For crying out loud. You can't win, guys. Other places, they're arguing over whether the church is growing or not or whose fault that it's not growing, and people can't be content with anything, all right? Let's get a little personal. Here's what we argue about. We argue about who's serving and who isn't. I hear complaints all the time, which listen, I get it. A bunch of you are doing all the work and everybody else is just watching you. Welcome to the ministry. Tim Keller said one time that ministry is like a football game. You got 11 people on the field and 10,000 screaming maniacs in the stand. That's exactly what it is. And it's the same no matter what church you go to. We grumble, we complain about our administrative procedures, which listen, I know, they're a work in progress. Our church has grown quickly. We've had to change things. We're having to work and move and take old things that are archaic and not right and try to fix them all. And then there's a lot of people who have the ability to help with those things, but they just choose to stay in the shadows. So we grumble and we complain. And listen, Joe and I are not immune. We grumble and complain. It's your grumbling and complaining. But listen, here's what Paul's saying. We're supposed to be working out our salvation, fear and trembling, right? We're supposed to be making progress. One of the ways you know that you're making progress is that we don't grumble against one another. Grumbling, complaining, disputing in the church, all it does is it contributes to a breakdown in the unity of the body of Christ, and that's the very thing that Paul says we should be cultivating. And so he very clearly says, stop it. Cut it off before it becomes a cancer that infects the whole church. So you've been saved by Jesus, you're working out your salvation and one of the ways that's evidenced is by resting in the gift of grace and not grumbling and complaining against one another. I used this analogy a couple weeks ago with our, our, our Wednesday night volunteers, but I think it's really good. Um, in, in his book, Power of a Positive Leader, John Gordon talks about how all of us carry a microscope and a telescope, okay? So, so the telescope is our big vision for our life, or it's our big vision for, for the church. So for here, right, we're, we're trying to fill the great commission, the spirit of the, the great command. That's our telescope. That's the vision. And then you got a microscope that kind of helps you problem solve daily problems and issues. The problem for so many of us is, is we take our eyes off the telescope and the big vision, and we just look through the microscope all day. And when you look through the microscope, all you see is the problems, and it just leads to grumbling and complaining. And so in a sense, what Paul's saying is, hey, quit looking at the microscope all day. Get your eyes up and see the vision of what God's called you to be, right? Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. He said, because the reason we do it, look what he says, verse 15. The reason we wanna do this, way we don't wanna grumble or complain, we wanna work out our salvation so that we might be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world holding fast to the word of life so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith. I am glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. So a crooked 
In Twisted Generations, a reference to Deuteronomy 32.5, where Moses has just had enough with the children of Israel, and he calls them a crooked and twisted generation. He says they dealt corruptly with him. They are no longer his children because they are blemished. They are a crooked and twisted generation. But here Paul's using that language to describe the world to describe the, the non-Christian world. So he's saying as a church, when we work out our salvation, fear and trembling, not grumbling, not disputing, then all of a sudden we shine like lights in this world. We become people without blemish. It's Paul's way of saying, listen, you are the children of God. Now live like it. Now act like it. Let the reality of your position as sons and daughters work itself out in the way that you live. And what does he say? You live in the midst of what? A crooked and twisted generation. So Christian, listen, you don't live in a sheltered commune, right? Where everything's nice and safe and you churn your own butter and you don't have internet. That's not where you live, right? You don't live in a bunker. You don't live in a church building. You live in the world. You can't run away from the world. You can't act like it doesn't exist. You can't cower in a quarter. You live right in the middle of this warped, twisted world. In other words, Paul says, you don't get to quit. You don't get to just mail it in. You don't get to run away. I'd love to quit some days, wouldn't you? I've told Mariah for years, it'd be so nice just to have a regular job. Right, just go to work, come home. It'd be great. I don't have to deal with any of this, this churchy stuff. I got a fantasy. Can I tell you my fantasy? It's called bread truck Mondays. Just driving a bread truck, right? Preferably a bread truck with like the Hawaiian sweet rolls in it, right? And just, just, just get up and drive a bread truck. Bread's soft. Bread doesn't complain. Bread doesn't grumble. Bread doesn't, you know, analyze everything I do and, you know, my Twitter, whatever it is. You know, bread, bread's nice. I can go to the back and lay on the bread. I can take a nap on the bread. Like, that's my fantasy, it's bread truck Mondays. But, but God says, no, I called you. You don't get to quit. Same for you. You don't get to quit. So if you're older, listen, there's no retirement in the kingdom of God. You don't get to pull the, well, I've done my time, preacher. It's time for somebody else to do it. No, you don't get to quit. You don't get to check out of God's church and not continue working towards the goal of telling others about Jesus. Not an option. Not an option. You're to shine like lights in this world. So the minute the Holy Spirit opens your heart to believe, the minute the miracle of salvation is performed in you, you are set on a path of growth. And God is the one who is empowering you. God is the one that's driving that. And you are to actively shine. That is not a passive word. That is an active word. One commentator said you are not to simply be distinguishable from the world around you. You're to illuminate the world. You and I are not merely to provide a contrast against the background of moral darkness in our world. Rather, Christians are to dispel the darkness of evil and ignorance that is everywhere around them. Right, so let's just get real practical. We like practical stuff. What's that mean? How's that look? It means when you hear gossiping and complaining, you don't just shut up and play dumb, but you strongly insist that it does no good to indulge in rumors, okay? I'm about to really help you guys out, okay? School started, sports have started. And listen, I know you were so good in high school. I get it, I get it. Like if coach would have just put you in more, you were going D1, I know. If it wasn't for that knee injury, I get it. You were awesome, okay? But when you sit in the stands 
and you just neat nick and criticize everything the coach does, it just makes you look like an idiot. It doesn't help our witness, guys. In other words, you should be somebody that when they see you coming, they don't go, oh my gosh. Instead, they should be encouraged and lifted up. Listen, there's not a coach, there's not a teacher, there's not an administrator out there. It's like, hey, how can we just be really terrible today? Like, that's not the game plan going in the locker room. Like, hey guys, how can we lose? Let's just figure it out. I'm gonna run a bunch of dumb plays today. That's what we're gonna do. Just helping you out. That's just practical, right? And listen, it means that while the world around us is obsessed with materialism and material gain, we shine forth by treasuring Jesus above all and we look to the interest of others. It ain't about us. When you see betrayal, you model loyalty. When you see self-absorption, you model generosity and sacrifice. Listen, when you hear racially prejudiced comments, that is not CRT. They still exist. I hear them in this town all the time. You don't just sit there and pretend not to hear a white man's joke. All right? You say something. You speak up and you remind people that, listen, all people are made in the Imago Dei, in the image of God, and you should not speak that way. It means when the weak are oppressed, you come to their rescue. When the disabled are mocked, taken advantage of, and nobody pays attention to their needs, you run to their defense. When suffering comes, and everybody look at me, it will. It will find you eventually. We don't become bitter and cynical like the world around us, but we shine as we trust God's goodness and God's providence in the midst of our pain. Work out your salvation by shining like lights in this world. And listen, that is hard, isn't it? And once again, it's like we're all going, Dad, come it, Paul, that's hard. I don't know how I'm gonna do that, right? And we're just looking down and we're beating ourselves up and Paul's all of a sudden coming to us again and he's gonna lift our chins back up and he's gonna say, hey, 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 let me show you how you do it. And what's he tell us? Verse 16, hold fast to the word of life. So how do we work out our salvation? How do we grow? By holding fast, right? That, that's a nautical term. It means to hold on, hold on to the words of life. So it can mean hold on to the words of scripture, yes and amen, but most scholars say that this is a reference to the gospel because ultimately who's the word of life? Jesus. So the way we grow in the Christian life is by returning again and again and again and again to the good news of the gospel. It's by reminding ourselves that when there was nothing lovely in us, God loved us anyways. That God didn't just sit back and wait for you to perform before he sent his son. No, when you had done nothing right, he sent his son Jesus to take your place and die to rescue and to redeem you. And that is a powerful message because we press on in the Christian life. We fall down so often, don't we? Maybe you don't, I do. All the time. And it would be tempting to give up, to throw in the town, but the gospel says, no, child, listen, I paid for that. Now get back up, fix your attention on me, hold fast, grip the word of God and endure. It's not only God who begins the work, it's God who is sustaining the work and it's God who's gonna keep you until the very end. See, that's the idea that Paul has in mind in verses 17 and 18. It's his way of saying, listen, you've been called not to just begin the race, but to finish it, right? It does no good to start it and not finish it. He says, no, you've been called to begin and to end. So brothers and sisters, listen, 
I could stand up here right now and give you moral imperatives all day long. And by that, I mean I can give you principles. So I could say, here's five things I want you to do and take with you today that's gonna help you grow in the Christian life. I could give you pithy sayings all day long. But hear me, those things will do no good unless your heart has been changed. They won't. Imperatives can't ever change a heart. Only the gospel can do that. So the more you work out your salvation, the more you work out the reality of what you have in Christ, the more you begin to understand more and more of who he is and the glory that he has prepared for us in Christ. When our hearts are captivated by the love of Christ, our lives are changed because our hearts are changed. The one thing that'll keep your light from being snuffed out is holding fast to the word of life. The one thing that will protect you from becoming crooked and twisted in this world is by holding fast to the word of life. It's holding on to Jesus. It's holding on to his word. It's to work out the reality of your salvation and watch what God will do with your heart. So listen, do you want freedom? Then hold fast to the word of life. What did Jesus say? You'll know the truth and the truth of what? Set you free. Are you desperate for more faith? Then hold fast to the word of life. For as Paul said, faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. Are you hungry for joy? Then hold fast to the word of life. For Jesus said to his disciples, these things I've spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. So listen, all the progress that we make is of Christ. And we should constantly remind ourselves of that reality that listen, all we have is Christ. All we have is Jesus. So from beginning to end, the Christian life is all about him, right? So would you please bow your heads and close your eyes this morning? So some of you in this room today, you, you don't know Christ because you've never trusted in Christ. And so today as the gospel has been preached, as, 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 as the Holy Spirit has been working, maybe he's pressing on your heart today. That's just God calling you to himself. but you're the one that has to respond. So today as the gospel's been preached, maybe you would find somebody and say, hey, I didn't know Jesus when I came in here, but something's changed. Brothers and sisters, are we working out our salvation? I think if you're like me, as I prepared for this, as I've preached this, there's areas that I need to repent of, there's areas I need to run back to Jesus. And so today, could we do that? And then after we've done that, could we do one thing this morning? Could we stand and with all that we have blow the roof off this place thanking Jesus that the miracle of salvation is his work that our growth in the Christian life is his work and that enduring to the end is his work and that all we have is him so Jesus thank you for this day I thank you for your word I thank you for what it shows us I pray that we would be a people that would hold fast to the word of life the salvation from beginning to end is a work of Christ and I thank you for what he does. And it's in your name we pray, amen. If you would please stand.